Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth Neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Last time we were together, we talked about the apologetic value of prophecy. And we had an opportunity to look at Isaiah chapter 46. The living God of heaven distinguishes himself from men and from dead idols in that he is able to declare to us the history of the ancient peoples as no other history in the world can do. And even more than that, that he is able to tell us the end from the very beginning. Prophecy is a miracle. It is a miracle of wisdom. And in having the scriptures, we have so many miracles that yet remain in the world. We might say that in some ways... The age of miracles has passed. We don't see anything quite like the apostolic era where they had the miraculous ability to speak foreign languages or um, heal the sick or raise the dead or these sorts of things. It doesn't seem as if that power continues to be invested in men. But we ought not to think that miracles have completely passed out of the world. Those many miracles of wisdom that are yet in Scripture continue in the world and are testimonies to the world that this religion is the religion of the God of heaven because no other uh, human being, no angel, no devil, and certainly no dead idol is able to tell the future in the way that God has told us the future 
This is not only uh, useful in providing an answer and a reason for the hope that uh, lies within you to unbelievers, but it is also useful in confirming the believer in his faith and encouraging him that he has not believed merely cunningly devised fables, as Peter says. You remember Peter when he talks of the resurrections as we were eyewitnesses of the fulfillment of the promises that have been given long ago. This is helpful because we will all from time to time face what are uh, C.S. Lewis called psychological doubts. We have embraced a religion and a view of life that is not shared by the world around us. And we all experience those moments where we wonder, am I crazy? My view of things is so very different than all of the other people around me. Could it be that I've simply lost myself, lost my mind? We come again to the prophecies of Scripture and we're reminded that our religion is a divine religion that could have only come from heaven. Also in the midst of our sufferings, in our many conflicts with our sin, and the sufferings that come to us either through uh, God's chastening or in our warfare against uh, the kingdom of the devil that is being driven out of this world, uh, we need the comfort that we are not suffering in vain that we are not simply making all of this up. Not, a, not an ounce of our suffering is wasted, but all useful in the advancement of the kingdom of God and also useful in the advancement of the kingdom of God in our own hearts. This brings us to uh, Revelation, both chapters 5 and 6. In Revelation chapter 6, we will see uh, that miracle of wisdom and prophecy uh, in things that are yet future to John. Things that John could not have possibly seen with human wisdom in his own time, but now fulfilled so that we can see John uh, uttering these things by way of prophecy. Things that he couldn't have possibly known, but that we now well know based on the ancient histories. Things marvelous, things breathtaking. But in Revelation chapter 5, we see the fulfillment of prophecies in Jesus Christ himself, fulfilled already in John's time, but uh, uttered by the way of prophecy, uh, prophecies thousands of years old. Thousands of years old. Most remarkable. You remember, we have finally come to uh, the proper matter of the book, the scroll in God's hand, the scroll of God's special providence toward his church from John's time to the end of the world. But there is a problem. This book is sealed. John had been prom promised a revelation of Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ was going to reveal or uncover things. But when John finally comes to it, he finds the book quite covered up. 
Seven sealed, not with just one seal, but with seven. And then a challenge from an angel, a strong angel. Who is worthy to open the book? This becomes a discouraging circumstance. There is not a creature in heaven or on the earth or under the earth that is able to answer the challenge. It is as if all of the creation simply goes mute and can say nothing. John mourns this situation. He longs to see the scroll opened. And it's at this point that an elder of the church, one of these representatives, really of all of the common believers in the church, comes to the great and aged apostle and tells him not to weep. And now as we get to the second half of verse 5, the elder gives his reason why John ought not to weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. The command uh, from the elder not to weep, to sum all of this up, is grounded in the truth that Christ is now going to open the scroll. So there is no reason to weep. And this reason he um, prefaces with a behold. Whenever you see that in the scripture, don't, don't read past it. It is a significant thing. It's a focusing marker. He's pointing out something that is particularly noteworthy, something that is worthy of the attention of the eyes, as it were, and of the mind. So basically the elder tells him not to weep, take note of Jesus Christ. It is true that none of the creatures can uh, are, are worthy to approach the divine throne and take the scroll, but Jesus Christ is worthy will take the scroll and will open it. This is delivered in the language of victory. The lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to loose the seals and open the scroll. We'll talk more uh, next week or perhaps a week after that on this language of victory. Um, but it is a victory nonetheless won by Jesus Christ, and it is this victory that gives him the right, as it were, as the mediator to go and to take the scroll and to open it. You remember the angel's challenge, who is worthy? Christ, who as deity was always worthy and always knew the contents of the scroll, of course, shows himself, demonstrates himself reveals himself to be worthy by his overcoming. Again, we'll talk more about that overcoming in, in future weeks. But I wanted to note here, for our purposes this morning, this twofold description of the victor, this victorious one who has overcome to open the book. He is described two ways. First, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then second, as the root of David. We'll talk more about what these um, 
appellations mean. But right on the face of it, there is an emphasis here on his kingship that he overcomes and is victorious as a king, as the king and head of his church. Although it is a strange victory because he overcomes as the lamb that has been slain. So victorious king indeed, but victorious as the slain lamb. And here we we begin to see uh, in a very short space, and children, you should never forget that the Lord Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He is the king as the lion of the tribe of Judah and as the root of David. He is the prophet of the church in that he reveals the scroll to the church. And he is the priest, both the sacrificing uh, priest and the sacrificed lamb. So here you see a picture of Christ in his fullness in all three aspects of his mediatorial office. Inasmuch as he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, we see him as the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy delivered by aged Jacob. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. to uh, catch the wonder of the, of the work that we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks, you must understand that this prophecy of Jacob before its fulfillment um, was, uh, was nearly two millennia old. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, died two and a half centuries ago, and it seems like a very long time, doesn't it? About ten times as long. Ten times as long ago. This is a long time. Um, More specifically, you're probably around the year 1800 B.C. or so. So we pick up, you remember that dying Jacob gathers his sons around him before he gathers his feet up into his uh, bed and expires and goes to be with his fathers and the Jesus in whom he had believed. But before that, he prophesies by way of blessing, strangely enough, but he prophesies the future history of the tribes. And we pick up with the prophecy concerning Judah in verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. 
Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. I do hope next Lord's Day to go through this verse by verse, but I want you to notice on the surface of it the promise of rule. Typically, the firstborn would receive three things at this point in history. The firstborn would receive the right of rule in the family. You might say he had the royal prerogative, even though he wouldn't be a king necessarily. But he would have the right of rule in his family. He would receive the double portion of the inheritance. And he would also receive the priesthood. Before Aaron's and Aaron's family took the priesthood, it seems that the firstborn in the family took this uh, function. Uh, if you want to see some of this, just make a note and look at the first bit of First Chronicles chapter 5. It appears that Reuben, when he went up to his father's couch, lost all of these prerogatives. He can be glad that he was not cut off from Israel. He still received an inheritance. But the right of the priesthood went to Levi. The double portion went to Joseph by way of Manasseh and Ephraim. And the right of rule came down to Judah. So his prerogatives as firstborn were distributed among uh, other sons. The right of rule, we find in this text, falls to Judah. But I wanted to first give you... Um, uh, context. But I wanted to start with remote context. Remember, as I said, we're about the year 1800 or so uh, BC. And we have a prophecy concerning kings coming from Judah, rulers and lawgivers. And this um, continuing until one who is called Shiloh shall come. And unto him would pertain the gathering of the peoples but what I want you to note here is we have the promise of a coming one, a Shiloh. We'll talk about that some more next week. Uh, but uh, kingship belonging to this tribe. But if we're going to understand this, we must see this in a long succession of prophecies and promises that were already at this time more than 2,000 years in the world. So at this time, these promises were really already ancient promises and are now being more fully developed. I wanted to begin at the very beginning and give something of a sketch from the uh, eternal covenant of grace made between father and son to this uh, period of time uh, with Abraham and his children, all preparing the way to... Um, Jacob and his boys. Remember that before the foundation of the world, there was a covenant made between the Father and the Son. And the Son entered into this covenant not as, um, not as an individual, but as the representative of all who would be united to him by faith. All of the elect. 
all those upon whom the Father and the Son had set their electing love. You remember, we did this recently, that the stipulation that was laid upon the Son was that he would fulfill the double demand of the broken covenant of works. Namely, that he would render a perfect obedience, that perfect obedience which his people were no longer capable of rendering of themselves. And that he would also render unto that broken covenant of works the death that it demanded, the death that was due to guilty sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled that stipulation. And it was always certain that he would do so. Being very God, he could not lie or prove false in this covenant, nor was he wanting the power to fulfill what he intended to do. The Father promised him a reward. He promised him that elect people and great glory in their salvation. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, a text you will know very well. But I want you to see that in Isaiah 53, we have all of these components of this eternal covenant. In Isaiah 53, you should understand that this is more than 3,000 years after the creation of the world, about a thousand years after old dying Jacob. But here we have the covenant of grace revealed to Isaiah with quite a bit of detail and distinctiveness. Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor cunliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to notice here the Lord Jesus Christ portrayed as dying the death that the covenant of works uh, required of guilty sinners. He dies it not for himself, but for his people, wounded for our transgressions. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. I want you to notice here that he is portrayed as the sinless one, stated positively the perfect law keeper. Later he's going to be described as my righteous one. Uh, This points to his active obedience or the fulfillment of all of the law on behalf of his people. Uh, Less emphasized here, but more fully developed, say, in the 40th Psalm, written maybe some 200 years before this, in which Christ is portrayed as taking a human body so that he might render obedience. That the Father was not uh, satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats, but he would prepare a body for his son, and his son would render that required obedience in a human body. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I want you to notice the first bit of the promise here, the reception of his people. He shall see his seed. His his work will not be uh, fruitless or barren, but it will be productive of offspring. And he will see them. This is promised to him upon the fulfillment of his work. Verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Here the prophet Isaiah sets before us a great mystery. The Lord Jesus Christ would consider the travail of his soul, his sufferings both in body and in soul, and in the viewing of his seed, his reward, he would be satisfied with this transaction. I tell you, this is a great mystery of love. Who can understand it? We being unlovely in ourselves have been the recipients of such a great Love that he would see the travail of his own soul, even losing the sensible presence of his father in which he had always delighted. But in the viewing of the reward, his people, he would be satisfied with that transaction. And now we see his glory in verse 12, the glory promised to him by his father. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, 
and made intercessions, intercession for the transgressors. In this one text, you have all of the components of the covenant of grace. You have Father and Son as two parties. You have the Son taking up the obligations of the broken covenant of works for the redemption of His people. And you have a promise made to Him of a people and great glory. The only question that remains to us is this. Was this a new covenant in the time of Isaiah? Was this a plan only recently developed by God in the 8th century B.C.? And the answer is, of course, no. When? When was this covenant made and how do we know? Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior, and so on. So we ask the question, when was the promise of eternal life delivered and given? <coughs> it was given here before the world began. And although from the beginning of the world and the first fall of man uh, to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was preached with greater and greater clarity, as Paul says here, yet that promise was first given and first delivered when the world began, before the world began. It says this very similar thing. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It appears that this was very much upon the mind of the Apostle Paul as he was nearing the end of his life and ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I want you to notice there, God's grace was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before the world began. And so we conclude from this that the covenant of grace was ratified, I speak strangely here and improperly, before the world began. 
strange. I don't know any other way to speak because, of course, before the world began, you well, there's no such thing uh, as a before that. Time begins then, but in eternity, in timelessness, this covenant was made and ready and prepared and already in place when the creation was made. From this we can conclude other things. If the covenant of grace was uh, ratified before the world began, then we know that the covenant of works had been foreordained, as well as the first fall of man. Without these components, the covenant of grace doesn't make very much sense. It also helps us to understand um, the ready preaching of the gospel upon the fall of man. God was not uh, uh, caught unawares. He had foreordained the fall. Uh, and he was ready to meet it and its problems as soon as it happened. Immediately after the fall, albeit in cryptic and mysterious terms, the covenant of grace is revealed. And the uh, eternal Son of God as the Savior of fallen men is also revealed. This comes out with the greatest clarity in the cursing of the serpent. You will know the verse as well. I'll simply read them to you. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Behold, thou hast done, uh, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In the cursing of the devil, you have the promise of his destruction by a son of Eve, a man. Interestingly enough, inasmuch as God then goes on to cover them with skins, it also points out uh, the divine aspect that's necessary in this victory. They were incapable of covering themselves. They needed to be covered by the skins of the sacrifice. Just this week I was reading an old John Gill and he makes some very interesting observations upon this text. By referencing an ancient Jewish interpretation, interestingly enough, inasmuch as God is said here to be walking in the garden in the cool of the day, he does believe that this is nothing other than a manifestation of the eternal Son of God, and that perhaps even at this point he showed himself in some human nature. And as much as he said to walk in the garden and utter to them uh, some sort of audible voice. And that he immediately shows himself to fallen humanity in his threefold office. Inasmuch as they are arraigned before him for judgment, he shows himself to be king. Inasmuch as he declares himself, uh, or declares the way of salvation and redemption to them, he shows himself to be prophet. And inasmuch as he slaughters animals and takes these skins as a covering for these uh, poor fallen creatures, he shows himself to be priest. 
And so, now what raises this in his mind, and we'll look at some New Testament passages. In ancient, in the ancient Aramaic translations, this would be Judaism before its reaction against Christianity. Judaism when it was still fully Trinitarian. In their ancient Aramaic translation of this narrative, the proper name Jehovah is translated the Word of God. And the Word of God walked in the cool of the day and spoke to them. And the Word of God said. The Word of God not treated as as an abstract thing, His voice. The Word of God treated as person. As personal. Very interesting. However you might however you might take that and consider the way that God manifested himself to Adam and Eve at this point in time, there is no doubt, and the New Testament leaves no room for doubt, that this is a prophecy concerning the mediator of the covenant of grace and the covenant of grace. Turn with me in your Bibles to first John chapter three. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And if you are going to see the wonder of the 8th verse, you need to understand that this is in the context. And you can see this in the, the ninth verse and following. John is contrasting the seed of God and the seed of the devil. The very contrast that we see in the cursing of the serpent. The sons of God and the sons of the devil. And inasmuch as that is the context, it shows us the way that John interprets this ancient prophecy concerning the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the head of the devil. Verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. I want you to notice another context marker that we are dealing with that very first and most ancient of prophecies, the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Four thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born, his arrival in the, in, into the world to destroy the works of the devil was prophesied. Four millennia. That's two-thirds of the current history of the world. 4,000 years beforehand, it was prophesied that he would arrive to destroy the works of the devil. Beloved, we live in a blessed time. We have seen his arrival. He has indeed destroyed the works of the devil. The devil and his minions are a defeated army who are even now being driven out of the world. When he said, it is finished, The warfare was over. He, as our head and king, was victorious. Conqueror of the devil and even of our sins. And in his resurrection from the dead, he showed himself also to be victorious over that last and most dreadful of all enemies, death itself. And has already removed its sting. So this was announced to our first parents 
If you take Usher's chronology in the year 4004 B.C., written down by Moses in 1490 B.C., but we have come to a point in history where we have seen this fulfilled. Beloved, if you struggle with doubts uh, concerning the divinity of our religion, if you ever wonder if you have uh, labored or suffered in vain in its advancement, Behold the miracle of divine wisdom. This is a divine religion. Good human wisdom, the wisdom of a man or even a devil, see 4,000 years into the future to prophesy his coming for such an exact and such a perfect fulfillment. We could go a little further with this for our further encouragement that... uh, In the Lord Jesus Christ, we are uh, partakers and sharers in the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. Paul, in uh, closing the epistle to the Romans, says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Remember what we said about the covenant of Jesus Christ. Although the work lay upon him alone, he was not acting for himself, but for all his people. He destroyed the works of the devil. We fight a defeated enemy, and Satan will be bruised and crushed beneath our feet shortly, as uh, Paul promises. There's not uh, too much more of the story to tell other than at this point, and we will, we will complete our sketch uh, next week, but the promise of this son was continued in the line of Seth. They would be called the sons of God. And so, of course, the promise comes into the family of Noah. Although it's a bit cryptic, there is some evidence that the promised son would either come, would probably come from Shem, possibly Japheth, but certainly not Ham. And then we would find that the promise would come to a son of Shem, Father Abraham. And we will pick up our narrative next time with the promise of a son received by Abraham, then passed on to uh, Isaac and then Jacob, and then to Judah. And then we'll come to the immediate context and look at these uh, verses. But I hope that you see that this is indeed time very well spent. I know that we all struggle at times uh, and we wonder about these things. But there is nothing in all of the world like the fulfillment of these promises. And what we are going to see in... uh, coming Sabbath days, not just in chapter 5 of Revelation, but when we turn to chapter 6, so many powerful and irrefutable testimonies that our religion is not a fable, but it is a miracle of divine wisdom. Our religion is from heaven, and that gives meaning and purpose to all of our experience, to our suffering. And inasmuch as we have a reminder that we are all shortly to go to the grave, it takes all of the sting out of death. The death is no, the grave is no longer cold and terrible to us. 
but a, a peaceful reclining in our bed. The Spirit goes immediately to be with the Savior. The struggle with sin is finished. And it's a peaceful and quiet and happy waiting to the resurrection of the dead. When we will see the fulfillment of another ancient prophecy uttered by Job, I will see him, my Redeemer, with my mortal eyes, with these very eyes of the flesh. Let us pray together.